Hello and welcome to this episode of The Jewish Views with Phil Dave, Kate Fulton and Diana Toman. Coming up, we'll be speaking to Gideon Falter, the chairman of the Campaign Against Anti-Semitism, on why his organisation have referred the Labour Party to the Equality and Human Rights Commission. We'll also be finding out about the fascinating story about one Katia Molodowski from Zelda Kahar Newman, as she's written what is believed to be the only biography on the individual credited as being one of the most prolific Yiddish writers, and female prolific Yiddish writers at that. We'll be finding out her story a little later on. Plus, we'll also be speaking to Rabbi Aryeh Safran MBE, who is the executive director of Chabad for North East London and Essex. We'll be speaking to him about palliative care and end-of-life care. We'll be finding out about that from a halachic perspective. But before all of that, with a roundup of the main Jewish news stories from the past week, here's John Kay. And we begin with Jeremy Corbyn, who's apologised for concerns or anxiety after it was revealed that he hosted a parliamentary event in 2010 where an Auschwitz survivor denounced the Holocaust religion. The Labour leader hosted the London event as part of a tour called Never Again for Anyone, featuring Hayo Meyer, a Jewish Auschwitz survivor and anti-Zionist who regularly compared Israeli actions to those of the Nazis. At the event, Mr Meyer, who died in 2014, said Judaism in Israel has been substituted by the Holocaust religion whose high priest is Elie Wiesel. And we'll be finding out more about this when we speak to Gideon Falter, the chairman of the Campaign Against Anti-Semitism, later in the programme. Liberal Judaism's chief executive, Rabbi Danny Rich, has said he still stands by the idea that the Labour Party is a safe place for Jews for now. Appearing on the BBC's Newsnight programme, Rabbi Rich was speaking as a serving Labour councillor in Barnet and was first asked about comments from Pete Wilsman, who sits on Labour's National Executive Committee. Mr Wilsman appeared to accuse 68 rabbis, Rabbi Rich being one of them, of peddling duff information about a widespread anti-Semitism problem in Labour and said some Jews were Trump fanatics who he would take no lectures from. A mentally ill man accused of stabbing his mother and sister to death in their home is unfit to stand trial. 28-year-old Joshua Cohen allegedly killed Louise Cohen, who was 66, and 33-year-old Hannah Cohen in Golders Green on August the 11th last year. Mr Cohen, who's Jewish, was arrested in nearby Golders Hill Park the following day and charged with two counts of murder. The British government is to more than double its aid to infrastructure projects in the West Bank and Gaza, as well as help unblock £220 million in Palestinian taxes currently being withheld by Israel. In a move announced by Middle East Minister Alistair Burt, the UK is to spend £38 million on Palestinian projects such as desalination plants and solar panels between 2018 and 2023, up from £16 million from 2013 to 2018. Mr Burt says only 4% of water in Gaza is safe to drink, residents have just 5 hours of electricity per day, wages in the Strip are lower than they were 20 years ago, and almost half the population is jobless, so he felt that urgent action was needed. The news this week. 
John, thank you very much indeed. Let us begin this episode of The Jewish Views in traditional fashion with a look through your copy of The Jewish News for this week. And this week, my goodness, what a treat. We have two people to go through it for you. We have editor Richard Ferrer and news editor Justin Cohen. And so, Richard, let us begin with the front page and shock horror, labour and anti-Semitism is back on the front page. Yep, the nightmare that never ends, and it just gets from bad to worse to unbelievable. Of course, we had the uh, IHRA issue last week when Labour, in its infinite wisdom, decided that it was qualified to rewrite the definition of anti-Semitism. Terrible decision. Hopefully, they'll overrule that. Well, things are getting from bad to worse. Just in the last few days alone, we found out that Jeremy Corbyn hosted an event in Parliament in 2010, comparing Israel to Nazis. It's come to light that he's been spreading conspiracy theories about uh, Israel killing Egyptians in Egypt years ago. A senior member of the NEC claims Jewish Trump fanatics invent anti-Semitism. A Labour councillor was uh, suspended for suggesting that Jews drink blood. I don't drink blood. Do you drink blood? Not no. Not often. No, don't like blood. Not often. No. Is there something a... you want to share with us, Diana? <laughs> not partial to blood myself. The Jewish News was even accused of being in hock with Mossad over last week's United We Stand front page. Uh, we really are are in the midst of a, a mad period of time. Where we should stress, though, that Jeremy Corbyn has apologised for any hurts. Jeremy Corbyn has apologised for things he needs to apologise for when he needed to apologise eight years ago at the time or decide it probably wasn't a good idea to host that sort of thing in his name in the first place. You have to recognise the problem before you can resolve the problem. Jeremy Corbyn and his party cannot resolve this problem. It will end on the 5th of September when they finally rubber stamp or don't this IHRA definition at that point, if they decide to go ahead with their own version, then really the party is over. Quite strong words, Justin, and you seem to be nodding in agreement. Yeah, it's, there's no other way of seeing it at the moment. It, it, you know, whenever you think that this is going to quieten down, it, it just gets even worse. And I think this week we, we've seen a number of cases that have been specifically about Jeremy Corbyn himself, perhaps that have come as a result of his own worldview. And we've got a fantastic piece in the paper this week by uh, Claudia Mendoza of the Jewish Leadership Council talking about that issue. But I think Probably, for me, one of the most shocking things that we've seen throughout this three-year period in relation to Corbyn himself is this press TV interview that surfaced this week. He was on being interviewed. There was also someone appearing from, from Gaza, I, I believe, or from the, from the territories, who was a convicted terrorist, someone that was convicted in relation to a bombing of a Jerusalem cafe. Um, convicted some, by who, sorry? By Israel. Okay. Some years ago. And he sat there speaking about prison conditions and about how badly Israel apparently treats their prisoners, particularly at the time of Ramadan. And he goes through all that interview and Jeremy Corbyn doesn't intervene on, on one occasion, doesn't speak about what this person has been responsible. The programme doesn't bring up what this person has been responsible for. And, and you know, this is unfortunately this, this issue of, of hearing no, no bad when it comes to those that attack Israel. It's part of the problem, uh, you know, again, in relation to the debate that took place at the NEC that we heard about this week, where Pete Willsman launched into his tirade. Jeremy Corbyn was again, apparently, at that meeting and said absolutely nothing. 
and also just to add into the mix as well, which we'll be finding out a little more about later on in this programme, Campaign Against Anti-Semitism have also referred Labour to the Equality and Human Rights Commission as well. It's all well and good being a man of principle, and of course Jeremy Corbyn is a man of principle, but any stand, any position, speaking shoulder to shoulder with anyone, I mean that really stretches credulity to breaking point, and, and that's what we've now reached, breaking point. Okay, well let us see what happens as we carry on looking at this story. In the coming weeks it's bound to unfold even further as it always does. Okay, let's move on with the story of one Freddie David. An absolute tragedy for so many people. Freddie David, he was uh, head of a a wealth management company called HBFS. He has gone to prison in the last few days. £14.5 million fraud. Basically, he's the UK Madoff. It's a Ponzi scheme whereby he was bringing in money uh, and then paying off money with new money. And none of the investments were actually genuine. So he's pleaded guilty and he's gone to prison for six years. I imagine it would be a lot more had he contested it. We had someone down in court this week speaking to some of his victims some of these victim testimonies are absolutely i mean they're shocking one man leon winsky lost three hundred thousand pounds all his life savings 52 years of savings i mean there's so many quotes in our piece but he has said he's destroyed my family we've been left penniless i, I thought about committing suicide yeah a, a, a shocking situation uh, luckily justice has prevailed but don't think six years will what? certainly be good enough for the people that he's hurt where is the money now? Because the money has come in. He can't have spent it all, given the, given the sizable amount. He gambled it away. Oh, he's gambled he, it, right. He had a, a dreadful gambling habit. I think it was something like £200,000 he gambled away in a matter of days. So, yeah, I mean, the man had a, a big problem and needed to fund it with other people's investments. The tragedy is that the victims don't take advice before they part with their money so often. That's the tragedy. He was a, a mucker. He was a member of the community. He was upstanding member so of the community. Everybody he was a confidence him. trickster yeah. in every sense of the way. And just to illustrate that point, Rabbi Kantorowicz at uh, Borenwood Shul actually welcomed him up to the Bimmer last weekend just before he went to prison. Actually, it's, he's, he's issued this incredible apology. He said, I'm in tears over doing this. I had no idea who I was really inviting up. And obviously, as a community leader, I I, I completely distanced myself from this. So it's an extraordinary thing for him to say, and that's that's in the paper as well. So, yeah, sorry state of affairs from start to finish. Goodness me. Well, from one horror to another, and the horrors of the World War in colour, a new image has surfaced. Uh, Yes, Phil. Uh, Listeners may remember about a month or so ago, we ran another image from this series of uh, a poor girl who just uh, literally a 14 year old girl with horror in her face. And it had been a colorized image of her picture as she arrived in Auschwitz. So it was a side shot and a front shot and a back shot. Well, we've got another one of these images that's just been released from a series called Color of Time, A New History of the World by Dan Jones and Maria Amaral. And this for me is the most iconic image of that period of time of the Holocaust. And this is the image of the poor little boy with his flat cap, hands raised in an arrest with this group of people being uh, led off in the Warsaw Ghetto by these Nazi soldiers. And the colorization, again, it just brings it all back into sharp focus. I stared at this picture for, it must have been three or four minutes looking at every freckle and you know even the pieces of rubbish in the gutter on the floor that just jump out at you and brings the past really shock shock horror into the into the into the present day I've, I've got an interesting little anecdote to add to that richard the author frederick raphael wrote a book called glittering prizes and the eponymous 
lead male, uh, an undergraduate, said that he, when he looked at that photograph of that little boy who was his age, when he was looking at the photograph, he was sitting in his nursery in, you know, in, in lovely leafy Buckinghamshire eating his Marmite sandwiches. And he said, there but for the grace of God, go I. That very photograph was mm. actually mentioned in the book. Mm. It's just horrible. It's uh, somehow when an image is in colour, it makes it a hundred mm. times and more real. And that particular real. one really pops, doesn't it? It really stands out at you. It's like the photograph from Schindler's List, which of, of the long queue of people walking into the camp and the one bit of colour is a little girl wearing a pink coat. Mm. Yeah, that's a, a really interesting comparison to make. Well, this is the real little child in the red coat and, yeah, I mean, that that could be my, my little boy. It just, exactly. it, it just looks like it could have been taken yesterday. Well, somehow it seems appropriate to move on to the No to Hate Awards, which is how we're going to finish looking at the paper this week. And Justin, I believe that this is a massive team effort. It's not just Jewish news. Who are you teaming up with for this? Yeah, this is the third year of the No to Hate Crime Awards, which was actually the invention of Fires Magal of Faith Matters. Of course, someone that's been honoured by the country for his amazing work in tackling anti-Muslim hate crime in particular, but also working with other faith communities on, on interfaith activity. In particular, one of the people he's worked closely with is Richard Benson, the former chief executive of the CST. And Richard now chairs the Hate Crime Awards, which are not just about anti-Semitism and not just about Islamophobia, but I think they've got five or six different categories of different hate crime. And, and, and these awards, which will take place in September, will honour those who have been at the cutting edge of, of fighting those hate crimes. Bit glittering central London venue, hundreds of people. This event has been backed by an amazing group of organisations and people. Uh, you know, there'll be government representatives there on the day, but one of the ways that they've been able to grow the, the awards this year are in addition to Jewish News, which have been there since the beginning. They've also got The Mirror, Take a Break, Absolute Radio, Closer Magazine, Magic, and all these titles, media titles, national media titles on board to help spread the word, to invite nominations from across the country and hopefully to honour as many amazing people as possible. Absolutely. And if someone wants to get involved with that, how do they? They just need to go to this week's paper, find out the details for entering or just go straight to the uh, No to Hate Crime Awards uh, website. And that's where we'll have to leave it for this week. But thank you, Richard Ferrer, Justin Cohen and... Don't forget, you can pick up your copy of the Jewish News every Thursday across London or read the e-version at jewishnews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. And as you've just been hearing, once again, Labour and the ongoing problem with anti-Semitism in the party is making all of the front pages for the wrong reasons. And the most recent twist in this particular ongoing saga is the campaign against anti-Semitism has now referred the Labour Party to the Equality and Human Rights Commission. To find out exactly why that is the case, we can now speak to the chairman of campaign against anti-Semitism, Gideon Falter. Gideon, thank you very much for speaking to us on this week's show. I suppose we just need to start off by establishing why is it that Campaign Against Anti-Semitism has decided to take this particular action? Well, this is a situation that's been going on for three years now. And we've made three complaints, three disciplinary complaints to the Labour Party about Jeremy Corbyn and his conduct, including the matters that have come to light in the past week in which he was interviewed by Press TV 
and accused the quote hand of Israel of being behind Islamist terrorist attack in Egypt, where he called a Hamas operative a brother of his on air. And also in relation to the event that he held in Parliament in 2010, in which comparisons were made repeatedly between Israel and Nazis. To which, though, he has apologised, though, for that event. Don't get me wrong, I'm not suggesting that it should have happened in the first place, but has he not made the right noise by apologising for it? Well, if you read, Jeremy Corbyn's a, a very subtle communicator, and if you read what he's saying, he apologises if any anxiety was caused. This is not anxiety on the part of the Jewish community, and he hasn't apologised for being there. He hasn't apologised for organising the event. He hasn't apologised for throwing out members of the Jewish community who challenged what was said. All he's apologised is if he's caused any anxiety. And this is an apology, a non-apology, really, which comes under duress because he was still accusing campaign against anti-Semitism, the Labour Party spokesman was saying that the campaign against anti-Semitism was leading a false and partisan attack which undermines the fight against anti-Semitism. Now, obviously, that didn't hold. And so under continued pressure, he's now issued this non-apology. But to be quite frank, it doesn't, uh, I don't think anybody in the Jewish community would believe a word of it. Well, you say that, but of course, having said that, we shouldn't overlook that there is a petition that has actually been signed only this week with regards to the extraordinary move taken by the three main Jewish newspapers within last week's print, where they said they printed exactly the same front page saying United We Stand. And yet there has been a petition from members of the Jewish community, up to 600, I believe, was the latest count, who've said that you do not speak in our name. So you say there isn't one member of the Jewish community who wouldn't agree with that, but actually... Oh, no, I, look, I, I don't say that there isn't one member. I mean, look, during the rise of, of Nazi Germany, there was the Verband National Deutsche Juden, which was actually supportive of national socialism in Germany all the way up until 1935. This was a group of Jews who supported the expulsion of Eastern European Jews from Germany, and they supported the Nazi party's policies up until 1935, when guess what happened to them? You know, there will always be a lunatic fringe within our community for whatever delusional reason seeks to support all sorts of unconscionable anti-Semitic acts. But unfortunately, I can't explain why people behave in the way that they do. As for these 600 Jews who have supposedly signed a petition, I wonder whether they really are 600 Jews. You know, we've heard, for example, from leading members of Jewish Voice for Labour saying that they actually only identify with as Jews in order to be able to speak more freely about anti-Semitism. You know, there are some very cynical ploys being used here. And I think that the Jewish newspapers absolutely spoke for the Jewish community. If you only look at the letter signed by 68 rabbis leading every single denomination of Judaism in this country, the Jewish community has never been so united. In fact, if one were to credit Jeremy Corbyn with anything, it is with uniting the Jewish community beyond any possible expectation. I never thought I would see the day where reform rabbis and Haredi rabbis were willing to sign off on a joint letter together. But that is exactly what they have done in order to condemn the severe and widespread anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. And the three Jewish newspapers, the Jewish Telegraph, the Jewish News and the Jewish Chronicle, all again, fierce rivals who have never really agreed on very much, 
all publishing the same front page with the same editorial. These are unprecedented united steps by the Jewish community, which feels that the Labour Party is an existential threat to the continued existence of British Jewry in this country. And that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about people in the community who feel were there to be a Labour government under Jeremy Corbyn, we would be so threatened by it that we may not have a place anymore in this country. And so we might, there might you know, of the 270,000 Jews in this country, according to the census, it might be possible to band together 600 who have some Jewish heritage, or maybe they're very active members of the Jewish community. I don't know. But they are a tiny fractional minority view. And if anybody should say not in our name, it's the Jewish community should be saying not in our name to this fringe lunatic assortment of Jews who have decided that they want to defend what is going on in the Labour Party. OK, but that is up to them, of course, the 600 in question. They they have decided to sign that position for whatever reason. I do want to come back, though, to one point that you made, because you said early on in this interview, talking very clearly about the distress and the upset caused by Jeremy Corbyn hosting an event in which Israel was compared to the Nazi regime. And yet, curiously, just before, I don't understand sort of how it would be OK for those who are, say, against Jeremy Corbyn and those who are concerned by what is happening in the Labour Party, such as your good self and your organisation, to compare this now to Nazi Germany. In other words, the situation when you were saying went before about those who condoned the Nazi party in Germany right up until 1935. The point I'm trying to make is that how is it okay for us to use that as a comparison against Jeremy Corbyn and what is happening with the party now versus, say, what he has said is the case with Israel? Just to be very clear, I'm not comparing Jeremy Corbyn to Adolf Hitler. I'm not comparing the Labour Party to the Nazi Party. And I'm not comparing the situation of British Jews now to the situation of German Jews then. What I'm saying is that in situations where a community is under attack, including the Jewish community, we are no different. There will always be some fringe on the edge of the Jewish community, which is willing to defend the indefensible. And that is all that we're seeing here. We're seeing people on the very edge of the Jewish community defending the indefensible. And I'm not saying that they are like those Jews who supported Nazi Germany. I'm saying that what they are like are a, a tiny fringe minority view. And so they cannot claim to speak really for anybody in the Jewish community apart from themselves. The problem is, though, that Jeremy Corbyn and Labour have in no uncertain terms said that they don't see themselves as an anti-Semitic party or a racist party. In fact, quite the opposite. Jeremy Corbyn, with an interview with the Jewish News, has even made it very clear that he fights all forms of racism, including anti-Semitism. So the problem is that if you've got the Jewish community by and large, who are saying that we have a real concern with anti-Semitism within the Labour Party. And then you've got the Labour Party who are saying, well, hang on a second, we fight anti-Semitism, we are not an anti-Semitic party. How is anyone ever going to move here? Surely there's someone who is wrong and someone who is right. But who's to say who's wrong and who's right in this situation? Well, I think it's very clear who's wrong and who's right. First of all, if Jeremy Corbyn has opposed all forms of racism, he's got a really funny way of doing it. Because if Jeremy Corbyn stands there on press TV, the propaganda channel of the Iranian state, which was banned in the UK by Ofcom, and he appears on that channel months after it was banned in a paid interview 
from the Iranian state and starts talking about conspiracy theories saying that Israel, the hand of Israel, might be behind Islamist terrorist attacks in Egypt. If he's sitting there calling a Hamas terrorist his brother, then unfortunately Jeremy Corbyn's not fighting anti-Semitism. He's part of it. But don't you believe then in that case that he's just trying to do what he has always claimed to do, which is try and appease everybody and try and see it from all sides and try and bring together all communities. Now, whether or not it's a case of those of us here on this program, the Jewish community at large, or indeed the campaign against anti-Semitism believes that he's going the right way around it. If all he is genuinely doing is what he believes is contributing to trying to bring everyone together, what can we do, in other words, to try and help him see it from the perspective that campaign against anti-Semitism and the bulk of the community do see it. Let's just be clear. The terrorist attack that Jeremy Corbyn put down to the hand of Israel, the Egyptians did not say it was Israel. They said that they thought it was jihadists. The Palestinian Authority said that they thought it was jihadists. Hamas said that they thought it was jihadists. The United Nations said they thought it was jihadists. Israel said that they thought it was jihadists. If Jeremy Corbyn is trying to bring together different parties, which parties is he trying to unite? Because all of them disagree with him. What, how does it help to conjure peace up in the Middle East for Jeremy Corbyn to go on an Iranian show and literally make up a conspiracy theory that I haven't seen repeated from any reputable source? Just finally, Gideon, what needs to happen next? Because this seems to be an ongoing loop, doesn't it? It doesn't appear to be progressing or changing in any way. Or in fact, if anything, it just seems to be magnifying out of control. What needs to happen? What does Campaign Against Anti-Semitism want to see happen before it is resolved to a satisfactory level? Well, we've reported Jeremy Corbyn now to the Labour Party for them to conduct a disciplinary process. Part of the problem is that Jeremy Corbyn is not one man who's caused this. He's part of a movement, a far-left movement, which is steeped in anti-Semitism, which is really responsible for a great deal of what we see in society and also in the Labour Party. Now, I don't believe that Jeremy Corbyn being disciplined on his own is going to be enough, and Jeremy Corbyn has come in with a whole group of people who make it almost impossible for him to be held to account. The disciplinary panels within Labour are filled with people who have defended all sorts of people, such as Ken Livingston. So what we've done is we've reported Jeremy Corbyn to the Labour Party. We don't think that they're going to take the disciplinary process seriously. And because of that, and because of the fact that this is our third disciplinary complaint and the first two have not been investigated to our satisfaction, We've reported the Labour Party to the Equality and Human Rights Commission, which now means that British justice will take its course and the Labour Party will have to account for itself and the discrimination that is rampant within it. Gideon Volter, Chairman of Campaign Against Anti-Semitism, thank you very much for speaking to us on this episode of The Jewish Views. Thank you. If you'd like to get in contact about any of the stories you've heard on this show, then we'd love to hear your Jewish views. Email studio at jewishviews.co.uk. On Facebook, go to facebook.com forward slash the Jewish Views. On Twitter, we are at Jewish Views UK. Or you can go to the website jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. And we are very privileged to be talking to Zelda Kahan Newman 
who's going to tell us about the biography that's just been released, which she has written, of Katya Malodowski. Have I pronounced that correctly, Zelda? Yeah, I think it's a Kadya with a D. Kadya so Molodowski. Molodowski, yes. Right, indeed. who is the most prolific woman writer of Yiddish. Tell us a little bit more about her, just literally a bit of background. Where was she born and how old was she when she wrote so, her poems, novellas, plays, etc.? Okay, she was born in Belarus and she was educated at home. Most Women did not, girls did not go to school because there was schooling on Shabbat and and Jewish holidays and parents didn't want to send them. So she was educated privately and she got an an equivalency degree for teaching at the age of 16, 17. And after that, she wandered. She got stuck in World War One. She got stuck all over the place. She writes in her memoir, she wrote a memoir that I met a man, we got married, until this day we have never been divorced. But she doesn't say anything about her her marriage. Well, the fact is that she didn't get married with a Jewish ceremony and she didn't want to talk about it. So there were a lot of things. She wrote a memoir. Her first writings were discussed. She was discovered as a poet, poetess, a woman poet, when, when she was in Kiev. And at that point, someone saw her, some well-known male poet saw her poetry and was thrilled and put it into his uh, journal called Egens, Our Own. After that, she moved to Warsaw. And in Warsaw, she was a big hit. She basically got famous in Warsaw. She came as a married woman. She was the second most published person on, in the uh, Literarische Blätter, which was the famous literary journal. She was bested, uh, you know, by one man, Itzik Manga. Other than that, she was the most well-known, most, most well-written, talked-about woman writer of her day. And, and in Yiddish. Yes, of course. All this yeah, happened. All, in all this, actually. all this was in mm. Yiddish. So she mm-hmm. was she bilingual then, because she would have been speaking Russian originally, presumably. Yes, yes, of course. She took her exams in in Russian. All Jews at the time spoke Yiddish and some other language. You couldn't get along with only Yiddish, whether you wanted to or not. She also was among the first people who who revived Hebrew in, in Europe. She joined their crew. And this was in Bialystok, and she learned Hebrew. She was with. She knew all the founders of the state of Israel because they had been together in Europe. They left in the interwar period, but she did not. She stayed in Warsaw till till 1935, and then came to the U.S. So she left not to Israel, but she left Europe before the Nazis came to the United States. She left. She emigrated to the U.S. And what happened to her there? Ah, yes. Well, she came on a visa for a visit. See, everyone knew at that point that Hitler was coming. There wasn't even any question. He he made it quite clear. And she got a she got a visa to, to do a lecture tour, which got her out of there. She already had a sister and two sisters and a, and a father in the U.S., but that did not help. She, she did a whole batch of lecture tours, and she sent the money home to her husband, who didn't come with her. And she was desperately trying to get herself citizenship and get her husband out. And the story of that is in my book, but she got herself citizenship and got her husband out at the last second. He came in 38, at the end of 38 and in 39, the Nazis came. So she got him out the last second. She got herself out first and then she got him out. And she desperately wanted to get her, her brother and his wife and baby out, but th- she just couldn't. Can I ask you what sort um, of things so she, she was 
Sorry to interrupt. What sort of things she wrote about? What were the poems different from the from the novellas, and what what was the subject matter? Okay, she she got her first poem. She, her first published poem was for adults, but she was remembered mostly for being a child, a children's poet. She wrote wonderful poems for children. They are loved and translated in Israel to this day. They are read, they are given as, as a required reading in Hebrew, in wonderfully translated Hebrew poetry for children in Hebrew. So Israelis know her as a children's poet. But she was an adult poet. She wrote a novella, she wrote plays, she wrote serialized novels. Till right now, her Broadway play was the only play ever in Yiddish. In Broadway, there was a play that she put on in Yiddish. It didn't last long, but she did it. And and there's now Tevya on on Broadway, and it's going to be the second play ever in Yiddish on Broadway. Hers was the first in 1952. Did she have anything to do with the Yiddish theater group in in the U.S.? In the U.S., no. She did put she did write plays. They weren't a great success. Her her play, which was the one time she took the novella from the novella that she wrote that was published in 1942. She made that into a radio serial and she got a lot of steam out of it. It was serialized on Yiddish radio and then it was made into a play. In 1952, the play, I wouldn't say it flopped, but it didn't do terribly well. In my book, I describe why. It was not a good time. The old time Yiddish speakers were already in Florida. The new ones were coming absolutely demoralized out of the DP camps, and they weren't going to any Broadway plays. So it was a bad time. The timing was off, and and the play wasn't nearly as good as her poetry. And where did your interest with her first come from? (laughs) Okay, I I did my sabbatical. I taught at at Lehman College. It was a great privilege. I, I spent a decade there teaching. Lehman College is one of the sister college of the City University of New York. The City University of New York claims that it has two million students. I didn't check it, but it's an enormous institution with with branches in every borough of the city. And there are four-year colleges and two-year colleges. I was in the four-year college called Lehman College, and I had to take a, I was ready for a sabbatical. And to be honest, this was not my plan A. This was more like plan C. Plan A and B didn't didn't pan out for a variety of reasons I won't go into. And so plan C was to take my sabbatical in Israel and and go to this archive that nobody had looked at since she left her, it there in 1952. This was 2002, and nobody had looked at it since 1952 when she left her material there. So I was the first person to go to that archive. And I opened up her letters from her father, from her, from her husband, from her sister, and found out all kinds of stuff that was fascinating. And the book is basically based on the the Israeli the archival material from Israel is based on what I got in that sabbatical year from my teaching a sabbatical year from my teaching duties at Lehman College. And, and Zelda, I'm, who are you writing the book for? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. Thank you very much. It's perfect. I couldn't have primed it better. The book right now is is a price so that it, it's for libraries. My editor says that libraries don't buy soft-covered books. They buy hard-covered books. But I want to get this to a general public. This is written with zero jargon. And my hope, of course, is that after it will be reviewed and after it will be out there, I'm hoping that it will go into soft-cover I'm all for the democratization of knowledge. And then when when the general lay public reads it, 
that's what I want. Not necessarily, it can be used for courses, but it's not targeted for a specific course. It's targeted at the general audience who are educated and interested in feminism, in Jewish history, in the history of the 20th century and what happened to women who tried to get through it. That's what it's for, a general lay audience with no jar- jargon whatsoever. When you were writing this book, did you have a chance to talk to uh, Kadia or any of her relatives? Uh, I mean, does she have descendants that are available to, 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 to speak to about the research? Yeah, she, ha- she died uh, without her children. She, has, uh, she, ha- she left all her things to a nephew, and that nephew by now is no longer alive, and his son is in California. Um, I tried getting to him. He wasn't feeling well, and it did not seem right for me to press speaking to him. But I read the letters, and I, I feel like I knew her father. <laughs> I mean, he wrote tens of letters. And it was fascinating, as as her husband did. So I, you know, I, I saw her correspondence. It was so moving that when her father died, I was in the archive. I cried. Wow. <laughs> the archivist, the archivist came over to me and said, "Did something happen?" I said, "He died." <laughs> <laughs> you almost relived her life I, for her. And she said, "Who died?" I said, "Isaac Molodowski." And she said, "When?" I said. In 1952. <laughs> <laughs> How important is Yiddish to you? Is is Yiddish a dying language? Should we be worried about the future of Yiddish? Oh, by no means. The the Hasidic community is burgeoning and Hasidim speak Yiddish. Now, um, I have Hasidic family and I did a little bit of research in the Hasidic community. And I have a, a I, w- I like to think of her as a protege. She's not my student. There is a woman who's a, Satmer, a member of the Satmar community. And she is on the, getting a doctorate at the City University of New York. And she's working on Satmar Yiddish. I'm so proud. So the, the Hasidim have many, 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 many speakers all over the world. And they have eight, nine, ten children apiece in a family, and they speak Yiddish. Now, they are not reading Kadya Molodovsky, that's true, but or any of the other, we could call them secular Yiddish writers. They are not. But they're speaking Yiddish, absolutely, 100%. And it's not a dying language. Zelda, that is so encouraging. Thank you very much indeed for talking to us. If you would like any more information on any of the stories or indeed the guests featured on this episode of The Jewish Views, then you can always go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Now, recently, we've heard about a landmark case which raises a question about the withdrawing of hydration and food from those in a permanent vegetative state without legal permission. There's been a recent case which has said that we don't need to go to the High Court, provided that doctors and relatives agree that food, hydration or medicine can be withdrawn. We're wondering what the situation is in Halacha. And with us today is Rabbi Aryeh Suffrin, MBE, who is the Executive Director of Chabad for Northeast London and Essex. Rabbi, what... In in general terms, are the rules for withdrawing food or hydration or medicine to those who are clearly in such a state of what they call a, a permanent vegetative state? What are, what are the Jewish? What's the halacha on that? Of you, I think I think we'd have to start with the premise, the reverse premise, and that is, what is the value of life? And according to Jewish law, where there is life, there is hope. 
and who are we to determine exactly when the end of life is. And as we experience in the cycle of life, often has been the case whereby somebody is told that they have a few hours to live or a few days to live and they go on beyond that. And hence, who is to determine this? So ultimately, a person lives on this earth for a period of time, which is determined by the Almighty and not by us. And doctors and surgeons and the nursing care who do amazing jobs throughout uh, the life cycle. Nonetheless, they are also flummoxed sometimes as to how long somebody is able to go on, even when water has been withdrawn for them or nourishment of any sort. And in my experience as a rabbi and in my own personal experience with my own parents, my mother in particular, it was a Sunday that she, we were told she was going to die and continue to live until a Thursday of the same week. So how, how do we actually know? And that's why we go with the premise, you know, where there is life, there is hope. And it's, we, we're living in very challenging times if we're now giving this over to individuals, families, emotions, and so on to decide that, you know, enough's enough. And what about if the, if the person could be in pain? Are we, allowed to, are we allowed to give increased medication that we know would hasten death? Well, in terms of pain, pain control, today, again, we're very fortunate. We're living in times where controlling pain and, and monitoring pain and so on is the advancements of medicine. That's a great help to everybody. Actually, nobody is supposed to be in pain at any time. And, and of course, we use all uh, the resources that we have in order to ensure that that is minimized to the best of our ability. But at the same time, I think one has to be careful as to what one is actually doing it. Are we actually doing it? In order, I know morphine in particular, but if we're doing this in order to reduce the pain, or we're doing this in order to increase the chances of passing on from this world, which the patient themselves might want, or the suffering relatives are often suffering more than the patient, but you also feel, you know, time's up, time's enough, let them go, let them go. Administering the medication is certainly something that we do. We've never, we've never held back on medication or, or modern medicine in any form or any shape. It's just this judgment call about deciding where, how long somebody should live or not, that's when we get into a very dangerous, precarious area. Are the times that we would withdraw food or, or water, are those sort of basic and we can never, we can never withdraw those? We know there was something called the, that used to be called the Liverpool pathway. I don't know if it's sort of slightly changed now, but it was, it was for those who are perceived by the medical staff as, as not being recoverable, able to recover. I think, as I explained, I'm not, a, I'm, and I must say outright, I'm not a medical ethics expert, and there are experts in this field. And what we generally advise people is in, to take every case as an individual case. So if one is in the unfortunate position whereby such a judgment has to be made, rather than the individual, whether it's the individual patient who may not, no longer be able to do that, or whether it's the individual family, should actually take advice from a halachic authority who is well adversed in the in understanding the details of medical ethics as to what would be the right way forward. And if you consider that for a moment, that really brings the whole discussion uh, full circle because it's not about me as an individual making this decision, especially when I'm emotionally involved as a family member. But it's rather than looking at the facts on the table as they are and then really considering the medical side of it. And there is a difference Apparently, there is a difference between being medically dead or clinically dead, such as brain dead and so on, which do make differences as to 
what the response according to Jewish law is. And, and one would have to be an expert in that field to be able to respond to that. And that's why the advice that I give and, I, and I've been involved uh, myself, my own family situation and others in, in the role as a rabbi to just give people that security and support at the time of the, cha- at the time of the, the trying times that they're going through. But at the same time saying, you know, life comes from the Almighty. It's not for us to make that decision. Let's look at the facts on the table, have a clear picture of what the doctors, the surgeons, the medical team are actually saying it, and then refer that to our lachic authority who is in a position to be able to say, yes, uh, we'll do this, that, or the other. But in general terms, for us to, that's the dangerous area for us generally to be, say, okay, now I'm in charge of making this decision of ending somebody's life. Well, I just wondered if it works in reverse, because I don't wish to sound flippant, but you say it's up to the Almighty to decide for how long we are on this earth. Yet at the same time, could it not be argued that modern medicine intervenes with that? And when someone is ultimately cured of a condition they might have, does that therefore mean that we are also meddling with what the Almighty wants if just say for argument's sake, someone's life would have been cut shorter had modern medicine not intervened. How come that's okay? It's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting argument. However, with the, adva- the advancement of modern sciences and, and, med- and medical uh, advancement, it's, that's all there for prolonging life. Now, ultimately, we, we also find the reverse, whereby people do all the interventions they possibly can, whether it's through operations, urgent or even planned, and sometimes people do make it through and have a prolonged life, and sometimes they don't. So on this world, we have to do everything we possibly can in order to prolong life. Ultimately, whether that's successful or not, that's in the Almighty's hands. We offer prayers at the same time, same time as we put ourselves in the hands of the best doctors possible, but at the same time, the same time we put our hands also in the Almighty's uh, and, and ask him that the doctor or the nurse or the surgeon, whoever I'm seeing, they should be God's hands in order to, to uh, the, the right, uh, what do you call, emissaries, the right emissaries when, to, act, to act on his behalf to prolong life. When a person is in a situation like this, it's a terribly sad situation, how do they know where to get help from? It's all very well saying, you know, you go to the halakhic authorities, but they're, they're in the middle of the uh, hospital somewhere. Yeah. How do they know where to get this help and from who and the advice? Okay, that's a, that's, a, that's a very good question. I think it's a very relevant question. First of all, we, in the first, there's various uh, levels to this. First of all, you have somebody who is hopefully connected to a synagogue community, and they should, in the first instance, make contact with their community rabbi uh, as a first instance. In a case where they're perhaps detached or never belong to a synagogue and don't have that sort of, that sort of relationship, then every, synagogue, uh, sorry, every hospital has a chaplaincy department. And within the chaplaincy department, certainly in, in London and, and, and the provinces, uh, communities, Jewish communities, they have chaplaincy, chaplaincy departments of all denominations. And one should make contact with that chaplaincy department and say that they want to make contact with a, with a rabbi in, mm-hmm. in connection to the situation that they're in. So there is always someone in a hospital from whom they can get advice. Absolutely, That's- yeah. And if there isn't a Jewish chaplain, they can speak to the non-Jewish chaplain who can make contact with the Jewish chaplain even if there isn't a resident one uh, in that particular hospital. Thank you very much indeed. You're very welcome. Thank you for the time. Take care. That's nearly it for this episode of The Jewish Views, but it's time now for our rabbinic thought for the week. 
And this time it comes from Rabbi Harvey Belofsky of Golders Green United Synagogue. This week's Torah reading, Akev, talks a great deal about the land of Israel. It's not much of a surprise. Moshe, Moses, is in the middle of his valedictory speech, standing at the edge of the promised land in the plains of Moab. God has told him that he will not enter the land, and he's preparing the people and his successor, Joshua, for life in the land, living a spiritual and meaningful existence in the presence of God. One of my very favourite passages in the entire book, in fact in the whole Torah, appears towards the end of Akev. It explains the difference between the land of Egypt and the land of Israel. In the land of Egypt, where the Jews had come from, there was no reliance on the rain. The crops were watered, and water was obtained from the tidal river, the Nile, which flooded the crops periodically to enable them to grow. But the land that they're going to is a land which will be reliant on rainfall. If the rain falls, they will have water and crops. And if the rain does not fall, they will suffer drought and risk thirst and starvation. Doesn't sound like such a great idea, but in fact, it creates exactly the right balance of reliance on God. God will be present in their lives all the time. They will understand that they are reliant on him and his kindness to be able to live. The passage finishes by saying that it is a land that the Lord your God seeks out constantly. The eyes of the Lord your God are on the land from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. This is a reflective thought. If we know that we need to constantly turn to God for what we need, for rainfall and for everything else, then God will constantly turn to us. It's a land of reciprocity, a land of mutual love, a land of balance in which it's possible to create the best possible synergy between man and God working in partnership. Thank you, Rabbi Harvey Belofsky, for our thought for the week. And that's it for this edition of The Jewish Views. Thank you very much to our guests, Gideon Falter, the chairman of Campaign Against Antisemitism, Zelda Kahal Newman, linguist and author, and Rabbi Aryeh Suffrin, MBE, from Chabad. And thank you to our producer, Sue Greenberg, and indeed to you at home for listening. You can always listen to this episode or any previous episode of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk. And please remember to subscribe to us in your podcast application. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News. From me, Kate Fulton. Me, Diana Toman. And me, Phil Dave. Do join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye. <laughs>